Okay. Um, good morning. If you have not been in this class yet this summer, or maybe it's been a few weeks, we are going through the book God is Stranger by um, Krish Kadaya. Um, and we are on the second to last chapter this week. We just have one more week left in this quarter. Um, so this chapter, I'll read the little intro, is Jesus and the Stranger, the God who turns up as good as dead, in which a dying man makes a promise to a stranger and we steal a vital insight or two from thieves. Okay, so um, kind of the first point that he makes in this chapter is um, that Jesus keeps lots of inappropriate company is the way that he phrases it. Um, I mean, we know this, right? Like, he befriends a lot of um, what the Bible refers to as sinners. He befriends um, a lot of people that are outcasts in the society, in their society, um, people that aren't necessarily welcomed or don't fit cultural norms of people who should fit in. Um, and he is greatly criticized for this. Um, the, a quote from the book says, He recognized that his whole mission was wrapped up in the welfare of those whom society seeks to exclude. You might say that Jesus put the hospital in hospitality when he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Um, and then he goes on to say, This sentiment plays out repeatedly in Luke's gospel. <clears throat> and then begins talking about... Um, the tax collectors who Jesus befriends. Um, his two examples are Levi, who is Matthew, and Zacchaeus. Um, thoughts, just initial thoughts on, on the company that Jesus keeps. And if you've been here earlier this summer, any in relation to other things that we've talked about this summer? Any thoughts? No, no thoughts. <laughs> we'll keep going. Um, and then a little farther down, um, the book says, according to a Barna survey of 16 to 32-year-olds who are not part of the church community, the public reputation of the church is summarized by three words, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. Okay, someone has to have thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, this is according to a survey of 16-year-olds to 32-year-olds who are not part of the church community. The public reputation of the church is summarized by three words, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. Do y'all feel like that's true? That is that there's thoughts? That, that is true of the church. I think it has been, um, maybe in our parents and grandparents' generation, and, and some churches now too, I'm sure. Um, but I feel like it's shifting a little to be more loving instead of judgmental. Or, but again, I think it depends on the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For and sure. I think that even if a church is, you know, doesn't agree with homosexuality. Drinking or whatever the taboo subject is, how they address it or kind of talk about it is very telling to the heart of the church. And I think that's where people think that churches can be judgmental or mm-hmm. uh, critical. 
goal because of the way that they speak from the state of Another quote is, he says, we are seen far more for our exclusion than our embrace, which is just basically another way to say what the first thing was. Um, but I think you're right, like that has held true in the past um, and can hold true, but at the same time doesn't have to hold true. On the flip side, I don't mean to talk so much, but on the flip side, I think there are also groups of people who are pro-homosexuality or pro-whatever, whatever, that the church may be against, you know, whatever. And they're just as judgmental and hypocritical as perhaps we are just from the other perspective, you know, just from the other side of it. Just from the, like, oh, you don't think that? Well, then, you know, forget you. Whereas, right. that's not quite fair either. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. In the sermon today, he talks about the heart of people and I just feel like if both groups would just step back and actually meet someone from that particular group they realize that their hearts are a whole lot like mine um, we need to stop being at polar opposite ends of the spectrum we're a lot closer together than I, I think anybody really realizes yeah. when they're taking such a stance Yeah, totally. I definitely agree. So, um, okay, one more, one more quote from this, and then he kind of shifts in the book. Um, this is from somebody named Lisa Cahill. She says, The Christian family is not the nuclear family focused inward on the welfare of its own members, but the socially transformative family that seeks to make the Christian moral ideal of love of neighbor part of the common good. Um, so I think that kind of flips the script for us the church can be seen as anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical but um, the heart of the Christian family is seeking to make the love of a neighbor part of the common good so he kind of sets us up to say Jesus kept inappropriate company and was very inclusive the church at sometimes is perceived as um, very exclusive. Um, and then he shifts and brings us to the comparison, um, or not the comparison, but um, the, um, the cross and hospitality. That's how he puts it. And the hospitality that is shown at the cross when Jesus is crucified. Um, <clears throat> got, I've got lots of quotes for you today. Um, he first begins to talk about just like how horrible that death was and how we become a little desensitized to that a bit. We talk about the crucifixion a lot and so it's really easy for lack of a better phrase or word for us to, you know, we paint crosses and we, um, we put crosses up in our churches and, and wear crosses on, on necklaces and stuff. But if you really think about what that meant at that time. Crucifixion was this terrible death, and he compares it to like the beheading um, when ISIS is beheading people today. Like it's not something that's seen in this flowery light at that time, right? It's this really ugly, horrible cruelty um, that the Romans are practicing. Um, so 
He says, however, it must be admitted that we perhaps sanitize the brutality expurgating the horror of the execution in favor of focusing on the benefits it brought us. While celebrating the crucifixion as the rightful center of our faith, maybe we have become so over-familiar with the story that we fail to see the stranger elements of this event. If we asked a stranger to study the story, all sorts of questions might arise. How can God die? Or, or is it only part of the God that dies? Why did nobody stop them killing the Son of God. Then again, is it easy to die if you expect to be resurrected? And how can a death make anything right? How can one man's death carry the sins of the world? Equally, why would anyone die for strangers they had never met? Do y'all feel like we have, as he says, sanitized the brutality of the crucifixion? I feel like you have to say yes to that. <laughs> because like you can say what you want. <laughs> well I think I think it's like it's, it is one of those things where we wear crosses and we like it's like no one is wearing, you know, nooses around their neck necks or, you know, the electric chair jewelry. Like that's really brutal and inhumane and we kind of see it that way. Um, but we don't see the cross as Arguably, we see the cross as being this point of salvation. We don't see it as this point of what it actually was. Of murder and death and gruesome, gruesome acts. Um, and so, like, I wouldn't even say we even, I wouldn't say maybe we don't. We've sanitized it as much as we literally are just giving it a new meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um the brutality of it versus the blessing of it is how Krish puts it. Um, and I think he wants us to really understand the brutality of it, not just the blessing, because he wants us to see what Jesus is going to do while he's on the cross. Um, and he, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and then um, go into what he says Jesus does and what Jesus says on the cross. Um, so the first is Luke 23, 34... I'll read this one really quick. And if someone else wants to read Luke 6, 28. Um, This is while Jesus is on the cross. He says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Oh, and first before I, sorry, before I get into this, Krish goes into laying out the seven things that Jesus says while he's on the cross um, and what each of those seven different things means about Jesus and for us. So this first one is Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes, casting lots. Somebody got Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So this is Jesus. So Luke 6, 28 is Jesus' earlier words to the disciples. And then Luke's 23 is Jesus living out those words that he um, said to the disciples earlier. Um, It's extreme self-giving, right, of of Jesus to do that. He is having this brutal, cruel death, and he asks for forgiveness for those people. 
this says, a quote from the book says, how absolutely important it is to ensure that our own expectations of God are based on what he truly is, not on what we have imagined. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on Jesus' words? Any thoughts? <laughs> I asked for lots of thoughts. <laughs> So Chris says that this Jesus's extreme self-giving can be um, compared for us to revolutionary hospitality. Um, I mean, for him to ask for forgiveness for these people is extreme. It's not something that would be normal today for us to do. You know, if somebody was brutally murdering you <laughs> or a loved one, you wouldn't say you or you wouldn't automatically want to say, God forgive these people for doing this, right? <clears throat> but it's most likely that we're not going to get brutally murdered. So how do we relate this to our lives? Um, and it goes back to kind of the theme throughout this whole book, revolutionary hospitality. Thoughts? <laughs> no. The book says the brutality of the cross's physical torture combined with the unrelenting verbal hostility makes this a deeply distressing scene. The cowardly cries of the crowd, the conspiracy of the religious leaders, the cruelty of the soldiers, and the callousness of Rome mark this out as a low point in human history, especially when set against Jesus' life. Jesus has saved his life in gentleness and compassion, feeding the hungry, healing the sick. The world repays him by murdering him and mocking him as he dies. Okay, so we have Jesus' first first words, and um, then he goes into the other man on the cross. Okay, the second the second person on the cross, not Jesus, and now this person. We'll get to the third person in a second. Um, and what does that man say? What does he do? Anybody remember? So, yeah, no, you're good. So the first one, you know, Jesus is receiving all this scorn, and all this shame, and there's a, the other man beside him receiving the same cruel death. Um, and he just hurls another, you know, insult at Jesus. He says, it says, this is Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. says here's an ugly snapshot of a of the greater betrayal and rejection at play that day this is an outworking of what was predicted of jesus's life in the early verses of john's gospel i mean to be fair that guy though like he's hanging on a cross like what i mean right wouldn't you say the same thing would you be mad or would you yeah like are you the cross like yeah. save us what are you doing <laughs> yeah true or, you know i i feel i don't feel right condemning that guy for Asking to be saved when he's like, you know, or not yeah. being in his right mind. Like, that's not quite fair. Yeah, the, totally. he's probably not the greatest character. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a criminal. <laughs> <of some kind laughs> right. Yeah. 
he did something that justified him being right there. Yeah. yeah. I guess Krish's point, I mean, it says hurled insults at him, but I guess Krish's point, point with this, with adding this in there, is that, you know, they, the, he, before this, he talks about um, them hanging the sign above him that says, this is the king of the Jews, and just how the Romans were trying to mock everything that he, you know, deserved to be or was. Um, saying that, you know, this person isn't worthy of being a king, and um, if, if he's so great, why can't he save himself? And that's, you know, their, their whole point. And then this guy just feeds right into that. Any other thoughts on that? Peer pressure is a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, I mean... Yeah. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of soldiers making <laughs> That's true. I'm just, ah, I'm on the cross anyway. It's like, I <laughs> Yeah, so then we move on to the the third man um, hanging on the cross, Luke 23, 48 through 41. You want to read it, Justin? Sure. But then the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, he said, uh, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting our, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Um, was that 40 and 41? No, you can stop there. Okay, so yeah, so we see the flip side of of the first man, save us, and then the other man. Oh, what are our thoughts? What are your thoughts on that in comparison? There's a part of me who's like, that's very human of him. Like, because I would assume that the criminal, depending on, I don't know his religious background, obviously, but there's part of me who feels as though it's like, he fears God, so he is asking, quote unquote, God. Mm-hmm. Or he, he's perceived to be like, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, if you are, and we say you are, should I be praying? Kind of? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, so this guy teaches us three things. So the first, he recognizes Jesus' solidarity with them. They're all in the same boat, they're all facing the same fate. Um, By challenging his scoffing counterpart, the criminal challenges us to recognize that right now is our opportunity to check whether we are in in a right relationship with God. Do you feel like he teaches us that? He's teaching us that. Let me say that again. By challenging his scoffing counterpart, the criminal challenges us to recognize us too to recognize that right now is our opportunity to check whether we are in a right relationship with God. Sure. <laughs> Second, he recognizes Jesus' sancti- sanctity. There is a fundamental difference between Jesus and everyone else, which is what Tom just said basically. While everyone else saw a would be king, a powerless non savior, a disappointing quasi messiah, this criminal alone recognizes his own guilt and Jesus' innocence of all charges. Are we guilty of measuring Jesus up against our unilateral expectations? Or are we rightly considering whether we, in fact, measure up to the standards set by Jesus?
Are we guilty of measuring Jesus up against our unilateral expectations? Or are we rightly considering whether we in fact measure up to the standards set by Jesus? Totally. We like to, however you want to say it, we like to put Jesus in a box. We like to say this is what Jesus meant or this is what Jesus' intentions were. This is what God's intentions were. Which This book has tapped a lot into that. We don't always know or understand. Or need to know. Or need to know what God's intentions are. Yeah. Okay, the final thing the criminal recognizes is Jesus' sovereignty. There is no rescue party anywhere to be seen. The only thing on the agenda for Jesus and the two criminals with him was death. But we look at the next verse, Luke 23, 42. um, This guy still asks Jesus to remember him. He says, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is Jesus' response? Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, we all have an answer. Who wants to go to Um, Jesus' words to the condemned criminal dying next to him emphasize the dimension of salvation that is centered on knowing intimacy with God. Read that one more time. Jesus' words to the condemned criminal dying next to him emphasize the dimension of salvation that is centered on knowing intimacy with God. Thoughts on that? Thoughts on Jesus' response to that guy? I think one thing that we don't, honestly, but we don't have privy to is people's hearts. So like a lot of times if Jesus responds to somebody and you're like, what? I don't understand that. Or if you rebuke somebody when it seems like a simple question or whatever, he knows the hearts of the, the heart of the question back to the heart issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, could, he just probably knew that this guy was sincere in his asking and not in a desperate act of, please save me because I'm about to die kind of thing. I like reading sarcasm in the text. Right. <laughs> So another key part of what Jesus says is that he tells him he'll be with him in paradise, right? He's telling him he'll be with Jesus and be with him in paradise. Um, The word paradise, Krish reminds us, um, is not used very often in the New Testament. He um, takes us to two other passages that uses that word. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. Um, is where it says Paul explains that he was called up into paradise and given the opportunity to see and experience things of God that no one can express. And then that word is also used in Revelation and is described as the paradise of God where human beings are given the opportunity to eat from from the tree of life. Um, So Krish um, ventures to say that it's 
um, key that Jesus is using the word paradise because that is taking us back to the Garden of Eden. The word paradise really means garden. Um, and if it's the same word used in that pas- passage in Revelation, um, then they're talking about the Garden of Eden. He says the cross is where all threads of the grand narrative from creation to new creation are tied together. should not be surprised that it is a convicted criminal who sees in Jesus what no one else has noticed. Luke's gospel has consistently highlighted Jesus's compassion and public recognition of those whom society has written off. So back to what we were talking about in the beginning, Jesus keeps all of this, what he says is inappropriate company, right? These these odd friends, these odd people that Jesus hangs out with, um, and those are the people that typically truly see Jesus for who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing Um, whereas who you would assume should see Jesus for who he is when he's doing don't so Chris is saying it's no surprise that even in this situation and kind of the final hurrah of Jesus's life on earth um, it's a criminal who is understanding what's truly going on here um This is a quote from Bob Eckbald with, from his book, Reading the Bible with the Damned. It says, the Bible is locked up by theologies we absorb from our subcultures. Left unchallenged, these assumptions will cause us to consciously or unconsciously look for evidence in the Bible to support our ideas. So he's saying here that we do a lot of the same thing, all of those religious righteous people in Jesus's day were doing right they thought they knew what Jesus was supposed to look like and what he was supposed to do and how he was supposed to act um, and when he didn't right they they rejected him and crucified him and it was these outcasts that understood what he was doing um, and we a lot of times in a little bit of a different way but we have assumptions and then we try to get the Bible to support those assumptions. Do you agree with that? You can say no. <laughs> it's just like proof texting. Yep. You know, finding the finding the verse that supports whatever it is you mm-hmm. want. It's kind of on the same for 
I have a kind of a funny story. It's actually really sad if you think about it too much. But, but um, we moved into um, a new place about a week ago, and we don't have any blinds on the windows yet. So you can see, you know, someone's walking up the driveway, and someone is walking up the driveway, and I was like, oh, Justin, there's neighbors. There's new neighbors coming to say hi to us. So I like go to the door, open the door before they even get all the way there, and I'm like, hi. They're like, hi, did you just move in? I said, yeah, we, we just moved in yesterday. And they're like, oh, great. And she said, well, we're just walking around um, sharing the truth about the scripture. Do you read the Bible? <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, this is what this is. So I was like, um, yes, I do. And, and she said, great. So who would you say rules the earth? God, humankind, or someone else? Oh, my God, yes. So I was like, God, and so she opens up this pamphlet and like looks at me like, "Mm, yeah, you thought you knew. And she has this piece of a verse, and I, I threw the pamphlet away and never looked at that piece of a verse from, I think, First John, that said the evil one rules the earth. And so she was like, this is the truth. Have you ever read this verse? Like, probably. And then she, you know, gave me her whole spiel about I needed to read all these scriptures so I could understand that the evil one rules the earth. Um, but yeah, I mean, people get, you know, all kinds of ideas by taking out. I mean, it was like, you know, just those words. It was like, Four da, da, da. Words. Yes. <laughs> and that was her whole basis of everything. <clears throat> so maybe we're not doing it to that extreme. But, or maybe we, but maybe are, we are. There are people. <laughs> yeah, there are people out there who are. I think that's like the struggle. The struggle is to, we want to take everything into context and we want to have it. But kind of like what we were talking about earlier is we don't see the hearts of the people who are interacting in scripture. And so you're always looking through this lens of, I have, in a weird way, it's like I have a lot of raw data, but I have no way of like, validating any of that. And so you can take, you know, we can all sit there and talk about the same Bible verse, and every one of us have a different take on that Bible verse, depending on which Bible verse. And and I think that's one of the cool mysteries of Scripture, to some degree, is we, we have the freedom, and the Holy Spirit has given us the freedom to convict our hearts, to allow it to speak Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, that, but I don't know exactly how that fits in. So. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think that that, you're totally right, that provides us with this great opportunity, right? So, a little bit further down. Um, another, according to another study, right? So, we looked at that first study that said churches are anti homosexual, judgmental, and, and what was the third word? Hypocritical. Um, and can be really discouraging and can leave us saying like is that really what we've created as the church Um, but I think with what you're saying we have this great opportunity so um, a study by the UK Social Integration Commission found that churches are more successful than any other social setting at bringing different bringing people of different backgrounds together well ahead of gatherings such as parties meetings weddings or venues such as pubs and clubs He's from England, so pubs. He calls them pubs. Pubs. Um, which, 
Uh, I think we are careful here not to say that church is the same thing as a party or a meeting um, or a pub or a club. Um, but it, it is this key thing that, that churches have this great opportunity to bring different people together. Um, and I guess the first question is, are we embracing that? And if we are, how do we do that even more or better? And if we aren't, how do we do that? to the fourth thing that Jesus says um, while he's on the cross um, he tells um, Mary and his friend John he says woman here's your son and then he says to John here's your mother um, so the the way that he relates this fourth thing to this theme of hospitality and what Jesus is doing and saying on the cross is that um you know, he's, he's already taking care of the sins of the world, but he still is concerned about making sure his mom has a hospitable place to stay, his, his adoptive mom or whatever you want to say, has a hospitable place to, to stay. Um, so again, just points back to Jesus's, um, the importance that he holds hospitality to. Thoughts on that? I had never thought about that scripture that way. Well, that's kind of a theme over this whole book, though, right? Yeah. Like, the hospitality that Abraham showed to those, you know, the people that came to his tent, the strangers there, and, you know, like, um, it's a, in a weird way, it's like showing that God in general is a very hospitable Mm-hmm. Yep. And I wonder if that's the the whole, you know, growing up, it's like, oh, would Jesus go to a bar? You know, would it, you know, 
feel love and the type of um, Jesus love that we do or, you know, I'm just thinking about of all the arguments. Not all the arguments. <laughs> but the whole, I'm like, you know, when you grow up and you talk to your parents about me, oh, I mean, Jesus went to bars, you know, trying to like push them. But you're just saying that to be self-gaining, right? Just because well, you want to go. In my head, it was, or in, in our conversations, it was like, well, you need to surround yourself with good people, and you don't need to do this, and you don't need to do that. And it wasn't even about drinking or anything. But I would use that as like, well, I mean, like, Jesus hung out with, like, he hung yeah. out with the sinners, yeah. you know, and the sinners were in bar. You're like, what right. would Jesus do? I don't know. He would go to the bar. <laughs> know this my God my God why have you forsaken me um, he's quoting Psalm 22 where King David is facing serious troubles and the significance here you know he's showing his separation from God um, and then um, Luke 23 46 um, the final words that of Jesus that Luke records come as darkness falls at noon. Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These words demonstrate that despite the agony of his death, Jesus still has great trust and affection for his heavenly Father. The words on Jesus' lips are borrowed from Psalm 31. And then he quotes Psalm 31. Um, Krish says, These six sayings from the cross paint a beautiful, multifaceted picture of Jesus as the great host of heaven. Strangely, each of them remind us of stories we have considered in this book. He's talking about this book. <laughs> um, stories we thought were the lowlights of Scripture, but where Jesus, but where we found God right there in the center. When Jesus cries, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" He is caught up with us in the fundamental fracture of our relationship with our Creator, as we considered in our first chapters on Adam and Eve. When he declares, I am thirsty, he is putting himself on the receiving end of others' hospitality, as we saw with Abraham in chapter 2. La-di-da-di-da, he recaps the whole book. Um, (laughs) And then Jesus' final words on the cross are, it is finished. Um, And um, he goes into saying how it it all is finished, right? It it truly is finished, our Jesus' task of forgiving our sins, all of that is finished. Um, this, I'll read one more quote. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had to come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not to the seclusion of a colstered life, but in the thick of foes. Final thoughts of Jesus and the stranger. 
that's all I've got. You've got the Burgesses to get next week <laughs> for your that's final week. Yeah, if y'all haven't read it, you should you should read the book. It's it's interesting for sure. It's a good book. It is a good book. It changes your perspective. So I think mean, like talking along the lines of even just today, like already seeing 